Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we started on this last week. <clears throat> Remember, we got off on a little bit of a tangent, not too much one, where we were talking last week about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit and how, you know, the culture we, the culture really doesn't recognize that, that we can do what we see fit with our, our bodies. And I kind of got off on a little bit of a, a whimsical uh, thing with that about songs that people sing. You know, and the first one I remembered was uh, uh, Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. Uh, actually, Paul Anka wrote that song for him, uh, kind of a musical version of how he saw life. And the other one I mentioned, I, I thought of it after class last week. I said, re- remember in the movie The Money Pit with Tom Hanks, where he had this horrible big old house they built, and they kept having contractor after contractor come in to try to help them fix it up. And all the contractors were these eccentric personalities, and they'd come roaring into their driveway in, in a brand-new Bentley or some real high-end car, and every one of them had the stereo blazing with... <clears throat> The song, I Gotta Be Me, which was, you know, you remember that? And it was just, it was kind of hilarious in the movie. And that was a song that was, I think Paul Anka wrote that one too for Sammy Davis Jr. But uh, anyway, uh, kind of a musical version of not recognizing that we are the Holy Spirits, but that we have all this, this say-so over how we live our lives and who we are. I gotta be me. I got daring to try to do it or die. I got to be me. The hubris in those songs, the arrogance in a man's arrogance is uh, certainly not what we what we want to demonstrate as Christians. In North Korea, the uh, only English song you'll hear is uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way, yeah. uh, because they believe in self-reliance. Um, and so the, that's their, their mantra, <coughs> I Did It My Way. You know, I, I can't remember the whole song and don't want to. But I remember one line, and he said, regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. Not me. Not you. We recognize a lot of things that we've done wrong, but then have the liberty of knowing that those things have been forgiven and don't even carry them forward. If God's forgiven them and forgotten about them, why would I want to? beat myself up over them. Certainly don't want to go back and repeat them. But, uh, thank, thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Okay. Chapter 7, Principles for Marriage. This whole chapter, like this first part of First Corinthians, gets pretty earthy. So we won't apologize for it. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptations of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Well, let's try to make some sense of all this. I think we start at question three today. Question is, verses 3 through 6 gives some very specific instructions to husbands and wives. Why is this attitude important? Why would it have been particularly important in that culture? All these things are putting up God's boundaries and definitions around things so that the, the Christians would not be affected by the immorality of that, of that culture. And most, most all of those cultures, and certainly this one, were very patriarchal or male-dominated. So there were a lot of mistaken ideas, even in Christians, about how this marital relationship was supposed to function. So this was pretty <coughs> shocking or revolutionary stuff to these people to think, okay, now there is this mutuality in marriage and, and equality in it, in, in this sense. Uh, John MacArthur even uses the term I think it's in that fulfilled family. If you never listened to that, that is really, have you listened to that? The Fulfilled Family. So, it, you know, I've got it, and it's on tape, which shows you how old it is. But it was really, really, I, I don't even think I've got anything I can play that on again. But it, the fulfilled marriage. So it talks about marriage. It talks about the husband's role, the wife's role, the children's roles. 
and it is really, really interesting. But MacArthur in that uses the term co-regency of describing the husband and wife in a marriage. And we know that the, the husband has, he is the spiritual leader of the household. And, you know, where there's disagreement, there needs to be deference made to that, uh, to honor God in it. But husbands and wives, there's an equality in marriage, not some banging heads against each other over every little issue. And that's certainly part of what's being communicated here in this sexual role in the marriage between husbands and wives. And they also have the <clears throat> unique situation of uh, a new church uh, and, and the fact that sometimes one spouse was converted and the other was not. And so what do you do? What kind of rules do you follow? Here? Yeah. And we'll dig into that as we, as we move through these questions, too, because it gets really complicated, quite honestly. It seems simple, and it, maybe it should be. But the fact of the matter is, when you're dealing with these issues uh, within the church, it becomes pretty testy. And you've got to be very gentle and uh, understanding and uh, sympathetic to issues that create tensions and the potential for divorce within the church. You know, this issue of, of mutually agreeing to abstinence for a time, uh, kind of compared maybe to fasting, to husband and wife to devote themselves to, to prayer for something. I doubt that we see that happen very often, quite honestly. But there is an instruction here for that, that, that maybe it would be a good thing if we, we as married couples in the culture we're in today that practice that some. I think one tangential lesson out of this is talking about the frequency of sexual relations, that it's not something that, you know, it's once every two months. Because you don't like, hey, we're, gonna not, we're not going to have sex for the next three months. We need to devote ourselves, you know, to this. But it's where, like, sexual relations you know is more often and you need to try to do that more often not saying it'd be every day or whatever but like you don't take a break for six months so you can pray uh, it does not it doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, right and it actually boxes that in because it says that you would do an agreement for a limited time so that would certainly imply that it would be a short period of time. Yep. Good. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. Question four. Anybody have any other observations or comments or questions to make about that? I was just thinking that uh, withholding relations could be used as a weapon against each other. <coughs> and that's, that's not a road you want to go down. Yeah. That's, yeah. Not allowed in this passage. No. It's also interesting. The one of the functions of marriage and sexual relations in it, first five, is to help you with your self control. Uh, it's a, it's not just saying, hey, you need to be more self controlled, but like, I've also God given you a 
a natural way to be dealing with the desires that I've that I've given you. And it's not that I'm saying don't have any relations and just emphasize self-control. You know, like you. Should, but I've given you this natural natural function. Obviously, there are situations where sexual relations may not be possible for health reasons or, or whatever. But so then self-control is emphasized. But in a normal situation in marriage, it should be one of the functions of a sexual relationship is to help with those desires that God has given you. Paul is also in this confronting one of the uh, other excesses in this culture. And one of the excesses is that that there would there were Christians in these churches that were so trying to separate themselves from the licentiousness of the culture and the licentious licentiousness of people within the church that said, no, we're not even going to have sexual relationships at all. Or maybe one of them would do that. Maybe the husband would say, well, you know, I, I'm going to be really holy in this. We're not going to do this. You know, you get into that, oh, what is that term for, dualism. you know, the uh, dualism, the flesh being bad and the spirit being good. I'm not going to give in to this dualistic idea of sex being a really a bad thing. So we're, I'm going to become more holy. And, and that just, you know, Paul is kind of speaking against that excess in the church here also. So it's not just excesses of licentiousness. It's also excesses of trying to have some super spirituality that really is not a godly thing at all. Not a godly thing, maybe even a prideful thing. So, but a mistaken idea nonetheless. Okay. About dualism. He's saying anything with the body is inherently bad, and everything with the spirit is supposed to be good. It's like it's going to talk about food later. That's another bodily thing that they might have said was bad at the time. Yeah. There's a purging of self here. Um, just in the orientation that he's pointing them to, the wife doesn't have authority. The husband doesn't have authority. There's an other-centeredness and a Christ-centeredness, you know, in this passage that I, I think often we can take any good God-given thing and then when self gets in the middle of it, totally corrupts it, and we make it about ourselves. Um, and the, I think that's the healthy reorientation that's happening here early in chapter 7 is sex isn't primarily about you as a husband. Your focus is on your wife. Your focus is on Christ's wife. It isn't about you. Your focus is on your husband. Your focus is on Christ. And when we get focused on ourselves, that's when either manipulation and weaponizing, you know, of something good and God-given, you know, happens, or depriving, or overindulgence, whatever it might be. Uh, but it's the getting our eyes off of ourselves here in this passage that's so helpful and so so hard, you know, with anything, whether it's our physical appetite for food or whatever it might be. You know, you used the word focused a couple times in those comments, and there's no place in our lives where all this becomes more focused than in the marriage relationship. And considering others more important than yourself. And just kind of a funny little example of that, how I failed that yesterday afternoon. Marianne is a really good cook. 
and she's got a number of things she does really well and labors over it. And for years, I just kind of did things the way my dad did them. I'd eat, get up, leave the room, and leave all the cleanup to her. And it really wasn't just in the real distant past that I kind of became aware of the fact that that was a really big job doing all that cleanup. So I kind of started taking on a greater role in cleanup afterwards. Well, I've got this little skin condition, and last night I doctored my hands. And after supper was over, I said, Marianne, I, I would really appreciate if you do the cleanup because I don't want to get my hands in the water because I've already doctored them. Now, that's a pretty minor thing, isn't it? Gloves. But, huh? Gloves. Bingo. Gloves. Why didn't I think, and she said, what was it she said? I you should have thought ahead. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> now, I didn't do that intentionally uh, to not do the dishes. But on the other hand, I should have, out of love, thought ahead and not done it until after the dishes were over and doctored that little scaly place there. Okay. So there's a whole lot more to this than just sex. <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of things in marriage where you're giving up. You've got to give up your self-centeredness. And uh, it, it doesn't come easy. <laughs> you've got to really be intentional about it. Yeah. Let's move on. I'm getting nervous up here. Okay. Um, why might it be better for some to remain unmarried? Uh, verses 7 through 9. And they'll say, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Why might it be better for some to remain unmarried? Steals the thunder a little bit later in chapter seven. So forgive us if we're getting ahead of ourselves here above. But that's okay. This question is we come back to it later, but it, but if we get ahead of it, we'll just skip over it later. Yeah. It's okay to go ahead and dig into it now. But yeah, I would I would completely agree. You know, later in verse thirty two, I want you to be free of anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is worried about the world's affairs, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. Um, not in a bad way, um, but there's a, a single-mindedness focus, right? Now, only the Lord is there if you're single. Not the Lord, your wife, your kids, your family. Then, you know, anybody else if there's, Lord willing, any time left. Um, and that is a very, very real thing that when you're single, you can wholeheartedly 
give your life away to others in a way that's pleasing to God, right? And and not um, besmirching or neglecting your other God-given roles and responsibilities, you know, as a husband and a father. Um, and so, yeah, you're able to, and nobody would have known that better than Paul. Paul almost certainly was married prior to this. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and it was a requirement that you be married if you were going to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So he was probably a widower. We don't know that for sure. I don't think there may be some other scripture that, that's more specific about that. But, but he almost certainly had been married before. So he certainly had the Holy Spirit telling him what to write here. But he had some personal experience that gave him... Uh, insight into things too I think, uh, I think it, Piper has the phrase don't waste your singleness uh, if not somebody else have made it up but um, you know that there's just a whole lot of less time constraints that you tend to have if you're if you're single um, that you're able to to meet with people uh, disciple go places that um, you can't do uh, just based on, on time constraints and energy constraints uh, when you're when you're married. Uh, I got married when I was 38. I would have much rather been married when I was 28 or earlier, um, and really struggled through that that singleness. You know that desire to be married. Um, but looking back on the things I got to do and the places I got to go for kingdom work would not have been it would have been a whole lot harder uh, to do that as a married person. Um, whereas I just go, all right, I'm just going to go, you know, and leave in a month and go overseas. Uh, so uh, there's a lot you can do as a single person. So you were kind of a hybrid of all this. Yeah. You devoted a significant portion of your life to singleness. Mm -hmm. But then recognized, no, this is not who I want to be going forward. Well, I, I recognized that a long time ago. <laughs> I like, <laughs> lamented it uh, more, uh, and for large portions of it was wasting my singleness in like, I just really want to be married, and, and like being down because I wasn't married, when like, all right, in good time, in God's good time, even though it's not now, uh, okay, I'll, I'll be faithful and you know, try to be self-controlled, uh, and then hopefully in God's good time, I'll be able to get married. It's important to see each for the gift that they are, right? Like, singleness isn't the withholding of a good gift from God. Mm. It is the giving of a good gift from God. Of that, that freedom, that availability to be able to more greatly devote yourself, you know, during that season. And some are given that season earlier in their life for a while. I was single, too. I was in my later 20s, you know, as well. And that was, it was an intentional, volitional decision for a while. Like, no, I'm, I'm not even going to pursue anybody for a bit. Because if I'm going to do this thing... Honestly, it's going to be really hard to do it married. I regret it sometimes as well. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it would have been a lot better because I feel like I've grown a whole lot more. I was a lot more selfish. Um, but it is a, both are gifts. And some are given those gifts even later. You know, maybe like Paul here later in life and he becomes a widow. And now he has the gift of singleness yeah. again, you know, to give away and devote his life more wholeheartedly. And so I think it's just whatever season God has us in to take it back to him and see it as a gift that I think, somewhere else. I think Dylan does some of this now in uh, in discipling Owen, uh, a guy who spends a lot of time uh, with him and uh, working out and texting and all that. And I think it would be possible to still disciple him after he's married. But once he gets married, like just that 
the time constraints and energy constraints, you know, like as he's, you know, giving to Mariah, it's going to be harder to go and work out, you know, with, with Owen. Um, so I think it's an example of him using his singleness right now. And, and particularly as newlywed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where there needs to be much more focus on each other to build the marriage strongly from the get-go. Mm -hmm. You know, marriage solves a lot of problems and creates some. Likewise, singleness solves problems and creates some. So it's both are blessings from the Lord, as Caleb said. Both are good. It's just different from one individual to the next. And I don't know of many individuals who have been gifted with singleness for their whole life. I'm sure there are some. I just don't know of any. I don't even know of anyone. John you, Stott. Who? John Stott. What's the? She, I think she was a missionary. Was her last name Elliot? Well, she was, was married. Yeah, she was married, married three times. Missionary martyr. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think there was another one of those widows okay. that 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 lived with the Aka Indians after their husbands. I think there were. Elizabeth was a saint, made saint's wife? Yeah, didn't three go back and, yeah, but then, yeah, the whole no, tribe. No, no, she, tribe she was, that was, uh, Elizabeth, that was the other, one of the other guys, uh, what was her husband's name there, you know? No, uh, what was Elizabeth's first husband's name? Jim. Jim Elliot was her first husband, he was martyred, and but then she had two other husbands. One died of cancer. Yeah. There was another one of the widows, though, that remained a widow, and and I don't remember oh, yeah. which one it was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that much yeah, about yeah. that. Um, marriage does not prevent incredible devotion to God. You can't think of it that way. That, well, if we get married, I'm not going to be able to devote my life to that. Yeah, no, you can. And you can as a couple. And sometimes it's, it's better because of the two being one. Uh, and likewise, singleness has fewer hindrances. But that in itself does not guarantee that that person is going to effectively live their life better for the Lord. There's the potential for it to be better. But even as Christians, we can we could devolve into a certain self-centered behavior. Oh, great. Now I can play golf five times a week. Or I can go hunting and fishing and do whatever I want where, you know, you kind of get into certain pleasure-seeking lifestyles because you don't have to take care of a wife or a husband. So... But obviously, what was that comedian that made a joke of marriage? He said, why would I want to get married? Every married couple I talk to tells me how much work it is. Well, that's, you know, there is work involved in being married, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And uh, for those of us who have been married a long time, you know that marriage is a huge part of sanctification, of dying to self-centeredness and living more for your spouse. So. What specific command to married couples is given in verses 10 and 11? 
to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Jesus has much more specific teaching about this. Very defined about marriage and divorce and the different manifestations of that. If both are believers, if one's an unbeliever and the other's a believer, Oh, gets really complicated. But the issue is marriage is for life. It's not a disposable thing. It really was in this culture. I think I mentioned last week, it wasn't uncommon for people to be married double-digit times. You know, 15, 20 times. You tire your spouse and move on. Or have more than one wife, or I don't know about one husband. I don't know how much, how well that worked on the female side. Probably not much in that culture. But it was not a good thing there. What instructions does Paul have for believers married to non believers? You know, as long as the non believer is willing to live with the believer, they should stay married. But if the non-believer decides that he doesn't want to be married to the believer anymore, then the believer is to let him go. Let him go. And the believing spouse is then free to remarry. They're not under the bondage. Now, yesterday, I was on my way across town. I had my radio tuned to 13.30 a.m., Christian radio station, and it was a call-in show. <coughs> and this woman, who's a believer, it's interesting, this just happened yesterday afternoon, about 12 o'clock. <coughs> this woman, Christian, called in to this Christian talk show wanting counsel on how to handle her marriage. She got saved at some point in the marriage. She and her husband got married when neither of them were pleased. She gets saved. And her husband resents her for it and has become very harsh. He won't have anything to do with her. He scolds her. He mocks her religion. He's not physically abusive, but verbally abusive. And they have no semblance of a healthy marriage at all. And she is angry with him. And is wanting advice from this call-in person, what do I do? 
the unbelieving husband has not expressed any desire to divorce her. But their marriage is miserable. And I was interested to hear what the talk show moderator, I don't remember who it was, doesn't make a difference, what he was going to have to say. And he, he punted. He told her, he said, well, you, you two need to go to counseling. And later he said, well, what I meant by that, you need to go to a Christian counselor. And he said, if your husband won't agree to go, then you need to go by yourself. Next caller. So what's the right answer? With that, with now well, we're only hearing one side of this too. We don't know what the husband might be saying. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Like, I guess with that counselor, it's like, oh, he doesn't want to go to counseling, and then she goes to counseling, and then it's like, ah, it didn't really work out. So then she, all she's thinking is, I need to get a divorce, which is not permitted. Well, in this context, it doesn't seem like that's right. It was obvious from the things being said that this woman knew the Bible well enough to know this believer-unbeliever thing in marriage and what this says, mm -hmm. but she was wanting somebody to give her permission to divorce this guy. You see how it gets complicated? After hearing what she had to say, had she come to me, that's exactly what I would have told her. You, you need to probably take a look at getting your own house in order first and, and living in a loving way with this harsh husband. And that's hard to do. Yeah. My, uh, my, my paternal grandmother and grandfather uh, were not Christians. And my, my grandmother, somewhere along, got saved. And I mean, it ended up being kind of a legend in the church that she attended, mentoring younger women and all that. But their marriage did not survive her getting saved because old WF still wanted to go to the tavern across the street. And she would scold him for it. <laughs> I mean, what'd she expect from him? She'd done the same thing with, that, with him for years before she got saved. So that was kind of one of those skeletons in the family closet that nobody wanted to talk about. So little boy, I never knew the, the ins and outs of it, but I could tell that my, my grandmother just wanted her family to be saved. But I think she kind of beat the old man up to the point where I don't know who left who. We never talked about that. But the marriage ended up broken because of it. So they, the working out of these things in real life it's pretty complicated, but it does fall on the believing spouse to show tremendous grace and love in that because you don't know when you might win the unsaved spouse. I think it's particularly, sorry, I think it's particularly hard for maybe the woman in this bench because 
Yeah. And as a matter of fact, as we mentioned last slide, he is the spiritual leader. He may just be a rotten one, but he is the spiritual leader. It's written in the indicative. It indicates what is, not what should it should be, but it's written. He is the spiritual leader. He's just not one, not a very good one anyway. by what she doesn't say or how she says what she says in a quiet, gentle manner, um, not berating him for living the way she lived with him. Yeah. So there's that too. Yeah. Question seven. What reason does Paul give for a believer to stay married to a non-believer? We've answered some of that. 14 to 16. For the, this is what you were talking about. Right? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? First of all, let's clear up what it means by uh, the unbelieving man is made holy because of his wife. What does that mean? Does that mean that the unbelieving husband is saved? What does it mean then? I'd say set apart, and a recipient of a lot of the blessings that the wife received. That unbelieving spouse and the whole family comes under the influence mm-hmm. of the believing spouse. And it creates a dynamic in that family that is for the good that would not be there if there was not that believing spouse in the family. Even if, even if that believing spouse is the only person in the whole family that's a Christian, there is an influence there. And there's probably not a person in this room who hasn't had some manifestation of this somewhere in their family. I'm convinced I got saved because of the prayers of my grandmother who tended to beat my dad and my mom up with her Bible. They so resented her for her aggressiveness like she did my grandfather. But you know what? I admired that woman. I mean, in the wintertime, she'd come walking back up Fulton Avenue to stop at our house, which was midway between her church and her house, covered in snow walking against the wind, walking the half mile it was to her church. And I thought, there's something different about this lady. She made me nervous, but I admired her for that. I had an aunt like that that just drove everybody crazy. They 
dreaded for her to come. Yeah. <laughs> but I believe her prayers uh, probably helped get me into the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, it was later on a church that Marianne and I were attending. There was an older lady there. When she found out my last name, she said, are you related to Kate Walther? I said, yeah, she's my grandmother. She said, oh, my goodness. That woman was such an influence in my life as a young Christian and so many mothers at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church down on Fountain Avenue, kind of back in behind the Germania Manicore. I had no idea. She was a big influence on a lot of women in that neighborhood. But the family kind of resented her. She wasn't really wise in how she did some things. Um, Yeah, the, the unsaved members of a family, the, the, an unsaved spouse or others, I mean, there are incredible blessings that get poured out on them by the saving, saved spouse, whether they recognize it as such or not. If the spouse conducts themselves in a gentle and loving way, an understanding way. Once again, we can't, my grandmother couldn't have expected the people in the family to have a strong desire to want to go to church and hear the cantata or whatever else. They weren't believers. And she just couldn't understand that. God had so radically transformed her. Why isn't everybody like this? You know, that's just not the way unbelievers behave. So it takes some understanding on our part, doesn't it? Well, as a lot of you know, I live in a situation where my husband's an unbeliever. And a lot of you have prayed for him for years and years. But um, he is, I've been blessed because he has always, he had, when our children were growing up, he attended church and Sunday school with us all those years. I don't know why, um, because, and he would participate in the discussions if mm-hmm. you go in Sunday school. So uh, that's been a huge blessing. And I've tried to use the example of people that have um, done it the wrong way. I've seen some marriages broken up because the wife just beat the husband over the head with it. And I've tried to avoid, (coughs) excuse me, avoid that. And we've been married 49 years, so everybody keep praying for Tom. And Tom is a, we know Tom very well. I ran, I do. Tom is just a wonderful guy, brilliant guy. Can talk on any number of subjects and sometimes would on at length. <laughs> but always very interesting because he knew so much. So um, let's, let's get one more in here. In this verses seven, 17 to 24, Paul counsels those who think they're in the wrong situation in life. <coughs> What is the rule that applies? Let him remain with God wherever he is called. Also, it says, lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. And the season that that you're in. I've always been a big proponent of that too that when I had little kids I wasn't able to volunteer as much but that's that's an important season 
that you focus on your children. That's right. Not only were you not able to, you should not have. A lot of young women, I think, feel guilty about that, that they can't do more in the church, but I would advise them that that's, that's all right. That is your assignment from God to mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. We tend to define that a little too <coughs> narrowly, right. especially if you have people in the church really hammering you to be on this committee or that committee or whatever. Mm-hmm. You don't have time for that when you're have young children. Um, there was, I think it was back in the 1700s, this guy named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And that is the challenge for us, to be content with our circumstances. To, to not be content, really, is to question God's providence in our lives. Now, we know that God is sovereign, don't we? God has the right to rule and does rule over the universe. Providence is his outworking of that in my life, in your life, in the life of this church. It is the outworking of God's providence. And we just tend to complain and whine about all kinds of things. I, I don't like my job. I don't like my boss. My, my marriage isn't just right. I wish I had more money. I wish I had a better house. I wish I had a car that didn't have so many miles on it. And the instruction from Paul on this, he, and don't see it right now, right offhand. But he talks about this life being a fleeting thing. You know, you're here for a while and you disappear. Don't be upset about everything all the time. And we have things that do upset us. We get tarked up because we don't see children behaving the way we want them to behave or accomplishing what we want them to accomplish. And, and I'm not saying that all that's not we wrong, or it's, it's not right to better our position in some ways. But typically that would be, how can I better use the giftedness that God has given me to glorify him? Not how I can make, make a better job that's probably going to re, or get a better job that's probably going to require a lot more time, but I can make a lot more money that, so I can buy more stuff. That's kind of typical what drives us. And this is saying, be content in your circumstance. And he is even saying to slaves. And you know, Christianity takes a real beating over that, over these verses about slaves. We didn't read it. I was going to have Dave read it. I jumped ahead. Sorry, buddy. Uh, Paul is not endorsing slavery in this. And to understand what slavery looked like in this culture, I just, I didn't know this until I got to study this a few weeks ago. In the Roman culture, probably half of the people were slaves of one kind or the other. But the crazy thing was that the slaves frequently had better educations than the slave owners, than the free men. 
Slaves were frequently doctors, accountants, uh, teachers, and really lived some pretty nice lives. But there were slaves that were under authoritarian people that lived miserable lives, like what we think of when we think of, of slavery. But it was not always like that in that culture. But Paul said, if you're a slave, be a good slave. And be content with your, your position unless there's an opportunity to be free. Then take the opportunity if it, if it presents itself to you. So let's say in our culture, uh, you're working in a job where your Christian values are being compromised or whether it's just not a healthy situation to be in, it would not be wrong. Matter of fact, it would be right to get out from under that if you've done everything you can to bring peace and uh, good teaching in effect to those in authority over you. But if that's not going to work, it's okay to seek a better place to be. That makes sense? Yeah. So we don't want to get too painting ourselves into a little big corner on this, or if you, if you have a job where you are having trouble supporting your family with the income you have, well, maybe you need to lead a, lead a simpler life. But maybe you could be a better steward of what God has given you where you could find a job where you could support your family better. And I know of circumstances right here in this room where that's, that's happened, or to be in a job where just the culture was just wrong, and you're trying to be a Christian, that to be a good influence, but you're being overwhelmed by it, that it's time then to maybe to move on. Because there may be a better opportunity for you to live out your Christian life someplace else where it would be more effective. And, and I know of people in here that have been in those situations. So... We have a lot of liberty in that, but the issue is just having this sense of contentment about our lives, not being all stirred up all the time. I am so guilty of that. Why is it that I can't find the right people to do this in my business? You know. Kathy? A verse that struck me this week as I was trying to apply it daily, First um, Peter 2.19 for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Yeah. I think down here a little further we get into another iteration of that about sorrowing and rejoicing and having contentment in both. Mm -hmm.